G'day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time interacted with this specific ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to underwater photographers, scuba divers, citizen scientists, and anyone with an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is Eric Hoyt, and he is the author of a new book, Planktonia which is all about plankton, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And Eric's actually a whale researcher, and he's the co-chair of the IUCN Marine Mammal Protected Areas Areas Task Force. Sorry for that. It's a mouthful. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. So we'll start with a little bit about yourself. What gave you a passion for plankton? And has it kind of directed your career, or did you kind of just fall into plankton from somewhere else and just found it amazing well it's that's a yeah that's a sort of multi-pronged story i mean it, it's it has a long genesis of of uh you know growing up loving the ocean falling into whale research in the 1970s when we were first starting to learn about killer whales it was particularly killer whales off vancouver island and just being curious of every aspect of the sea and how we can protect it you know keep it healthy as as you get involved with individual animals you start to care about them in a way that you know that it's it's not some abstract thing and i remember one early thing with whales being out we had these all-night whale watches and we were just trying to monitor the behavior of orcas 24 hours and we had this bay where we were camped uh, where they would come in so so i'd go out in the bay we'd each take turns doing this you know three or four of us and uh, we'd go out and we'd just sit in a rowboat all night long and i suddenly became aware of all these amazing phosphorescent trails going through the water you know as you'd see seals and fish going and i you know just started taking a light out there and shining it down into the water and seeing the kind of buzz of activity, you know, it was just extraordinary. I had no idea about, you know, vertical migration or that all this plankton was coming to the surface every night. But it, my, by God, it was there. You know, you, you didn't see it necessarily to the same extent during the day, but it was there at night. And that I kind of filed that memory in a way, you know, through a long tangled path of working on a lot of different projects related to whales and marine mammals and marine protected areas over the years i started to explore my you know the the sort of wider ocean uh, mainly through writing through popular writing and i did a book called creatures of the deep which was mostly focused on the stuff near the bottom uh, that i was curious about in these expeditions to the bottom it was a bit of history and it was um, geology you know how the plate tectonics work and evolution and it was all these things coming together to try to uh, get a picture of what was going on uh, near the bottom and of course you know since then we've had all these expeditions to uh, to the bottom of the sea you know just in the last four or five years with victor vescovo and and um, uh, Cameron from, uh, you know, who, who made the Titanic movie, you know, had his own sub. And, you know, but at the time I wrote the book, it was really, you know, a couple of guys back in the 1960s 
And that was it, you know, and why, why hadn't we gone to the bottom of the sea? So I had this curiosity and part of that book was going down layer by layer. So I had a section in the surface layer and in the mesopelagic, you know, which has all this wonderful, uh, you know, the light show, the bioluminescence, you know, is at a higher um, level, you know, more prevalent there than anywhere else in the ocean. Again, that was a, a kind of teaser for me. Uh, yeah, and actually part of that book was looking at the smallest organisms going to the largest. So, so I did start with phytoplankton, the plant plankton, go you know going up to zooplankton and up to the larger species like whales that are actually eating uh, some of that zooplankton. So there was that, and then I did another book that uh, looked at layers, and I got introduced to some of these plankton photographers, you know, Mike that are doing the really small stuff. And that was my first taste of the Blackwater work. And it was Linda Ianiello and Susan Mears who do work off of Florida, who are, you know, fabulous, you know, going out every night. That got me into it more. And then I just decided, well, I've got to do a whole book on this, you know, and talk to people in different parts of the world who are doing it. And that's that's the current book, Planktonia. Yeah, and it's it's a gorgeous book. I've been looking through the photos, and I've I've done a little bit of as you mentioned. We'll just clarify. So, how a lot of people see these plankton, and how you first saw them was with the light, and to dive with them, it's called blackwater yes. photography. Or I've even heard the term bonfire photography, which is kind of like that, and that's um, where you dive in the black with lots of lights. I just want to touch though on plankton before we dive into like the real nitty gritty and the awesome animals. But you mentioned there's kind of two main fields of plankton. There's the phytoplankton and the zooplankton. So talk us through what they are and any other kind of layers within those, especially the zooplankton. Yeah. Well, plankton plankton is this great big catch-all that is, uh, it's, it's almost anything that isn't nectin, which is the kind of stuff that can swim on its own or is attached to the bottom, can be plankton. Plankton is, is the stuff that can't really make headway against currents so i mean for a long time i thought well plankton is stuff that just doesn't swim but actually it does swim and it does some amazing swims because it, it comes up from deep up to the surface every night so it has to do a certain amount of swimming but it's stuff that can't make a lot of headway toward you know w when there are currents out there like fish can of yeah lots lots of other species so it's not a taxonomic entity it's a kind of catch-all yeah. for a group of animals. And in fact, I go into the in the book into all the different sizes of plankton. You know, you've got stuff that's about, you know, less than the width of a hair up to uh, some people consider sunfish to be plankton. The adult sunfish. The adult sunfish, fish, yeah. Oh. Some people say the sunfish, you know, they can swim pretty well, but they do an awful lot of plankton like floating around too, you know. And it depends on the species of sunfish. Some are a little bit more uh, lackadaisical, I think, is than others. But it, but they are, you know, they can be considered plankton. And of course, the jellyfish, like the lion's mane jellyfish, you know, which can be more than a hundred feet long with the tentacles. And then you've got, I think, the largest one that I found in uh, the literature was this thing called apolemia, which is a siphonophore. What what's a siphonophore? Well, it's like a colony. Yeah, it's like a colony. It's in the jelly family. 
and it's a colony, you know, so it's all these things connected together. And they found it off Western Australia and it was uh, 300 feet long. It was a, about two or three times the length of a blue whale. You know, they couldn't get an exact wow. measurement because it was all curled up in a kind of defensive posture. But, you know, technically you could say that was plankton too, you know. So it's not just all the small stuff, but most of it is the small stuff. And and the fundamental uh, stuff, of course, is the phytoplankton, the plant plankton. And that's, you know, responsible for a lot of the oxygen that we breathe. And this planet, life on this planet depends on phytoplankton. And everything in the sea depends on phytoplankton because you've got then the zooplankton munching on that. And of course, zo zooplankton, the zooplankton munching on each other too, you know, <laughs> I mean, they're, eating, they're ravenously hungry, especially when they come to the surface at night. It's a pretty tough life as a plankton, a zooplankton, especially, I, I reckon. Like, it's a, yeah, dog-eat-dog -dog world out there for them. It is, it is. And that, that that was, you know, that was one of the fascinating revelations about the book was that, or about the, you know, research into this, was that there are different strategies the zooplankton uses. I'm going to say zooplankton sometimes and zooplankton other times. I think... <laughs> people, you know, it's like zoology and zoology. People say it both ways. Um, and I'm kind of mixed up Canadian living in Britain for so many years. So it's, you know, but anyway, the evolutionary strategies that zoo zooplankton use are different than what they, they use as adults. That's why they look different. So, so, you know, if you're a zooplankton and you want to avoid being eaten, you might have huge fins, you know, that are and barbells hanging down to distract the, uh, you know, from your chin hanging down. So you distract the predator. You might want to ride on a, on a jelly. So you have your little protection unit, you know, that travels with you. You, you have all these strategies. For example, a, a flounder may have eyes on both sides of its head as a juvenile or as larvae and these fabulous fins, you know, that just like so flamboyant, looks like a peacock underwater, you know, it's uh, fabulous looking. But a lot of that is to fool, you know, whoever's looking at it, make it look bigger and sometimes or make it look different you know, so it looks like something else to the predator, you know, like a jellyfish it shouldn't fool around with. But then when that flounder settles, heads for the bottom, becomes an adult, you know, the eyes move to the left side. Which is crazy. I've always found how flounder's eyes move. Amazing. Totally crazy. And 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 they become a different animal, really. And I mean, that was the other thing with, with a lot of this plankton. It's It's not just that it goes through one or two stages but it's got multiple stages and looks different all the time yeah well that's so that was one thing i was going to ask you about because i've seen i've done a little bit of black water photography and seen a few of these animals and normally i'd ask a guest to kind of describe an animal and tell me what it looks like but plankton are just so varied and they totally metamorphosize but the, the question is how do you actually identify what it's going to turn into like are there any hints or is it just hard work yeah there's a combination of hard work and um, using science in new ways i mean getting their dna barcoding but i'm going to step back first because i want to talk about how plankton were studied uh, or have been studied 
historically and that's they're they're collected in these nets by the side you know by the side of ships and what happens is that they get destroyed essentially by you know by being funneled into the nets and so it's really hard to you know the delicate fins are mashed and if they're gelatinous at all you know they can turn into complete mush, you know, like the salps and, and jellyfish. If you look at samples, traditional samples in museums, they won't have any pigment because they're in formalin and the fins will be, won't be there, you know. So you're seeing something as larvae that it doesn't really look like even what the larvae looked like, you know, much less trying to connect it then to the adult. Yeah. So there are, you know, there are fantastic planktonologists who are able to do all this and, and, and have a lot of clues. And actually having a couple of them from the Smithsonian, the National Museum, uh, G. David Johnson and Bruce Mundy out in Hawaii, you know, have been uh, really helpful in giving it identifications to the Blackwater photographers but really what what that's kind of started and is very exciting is a program to um, try and collect uh, just a few examples of the species and then take the dna they can then try and match that to the adult fish the other thing is actually the photographs are proving to be incredibly valuable because for many plankton specialists they've never seen this before yeah you know, they're not necessarily divers. They're they're looking at the museum specimens. So they are really, you know, happy to help with all of this. Yeah. And so so we've mentioned like mm -hmm. black water a few times and that black water photography is where you put a whole bunch of lights in the water and it attracts these plankton. And we've kind of mentioned migrations, how they move up and down. But tell us first, do the plankton move to the light because they're migrating and why do they migrate? What's migration of plankton all about? Yeah, good question. Uh, the migration of plankton, you know, it really, it's its a great story, actually, how they first figured it out. There was um, Georges Cuvier, who's actually, I know from my whale studies, because the Cuvier's beaked whale that's found all around Australia and all, all over the world, you know, he also had a, a hand in finding it and it's named after him. But he, he also, he was one of the first ones to notice in a lake, plankton, there was a lot of activity at night and it happened, was continually happening. The next clue, I think, was in World War II, the German U-boats were using echo sounders in the North Atlantic Ocean and were finding that the bottom of the sea was going up every night. <laughs> and they had no idea what was going on. But they'd find this, you know, they'd send these signals out and all of a sudden, you know, the, it was very shallow and it wasn't shallow. They knew it wasn't shallow yeah. because they were in the middle of the Atlantic, but, it, but they were getting these strange signals and just had no idea. But it was after World War II then that by looking at lanternfish and, and other, other things, they started to realize that this was plankton coming up to the surface every night in such huge numbers, you know, trillions and trillions and trillions. And and not only that, but that it was happening everywhere in the ocean. It wasn't just some phenomenon, you know, in a lake or in the North Atlantic or whatever, it was happening everywhere. And so what happens is that plankton, you know, for a variety of reasons, I mean, a lot, probably a lot of it is that everybody else is, well, 
yeah, I was going to say everybody else is doing it. Well, I mean, that's where the action's happening up in the upper surfaces, but it has to start somewhere. And I think, I think they're hiding during the day because the, the upper area is lit, you know, well lit up to 200 meters. And through the sort of cover of night, they can come up. They may have their own little light devices, you know, the, the flashing and this and that. But as a result, all this other life comes up there too, you know, squids and octopus and, uh, you know, larger fish, anything that wants to feed. You know, we, yeah. we see a lot of whales and dolphins up at night feeding, you know, and because there's a lot of stuff going on up there and it's a good time to feed. You know, this is this is what's, what happens. It's, you know, I, I call it the greatest migration on earth. In terms of numbers, it has to be. You know, we think of migration as being these whales crossing oceans and 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 seabirds and and monarch butterflies and all that but you know really there's a lot more um in the ocean if you consider the breadth of the ocean in it and the fact that it's happening from the tropics yeah. to the arctic limited by ice of course but you know i think they end up they end up mating in those upper waters sometimes you know i mean all everything ha ends up happening alongside the the feeding but it's mainly feeding trying to eat uh, and trying to avoid being eaten. Yeah, so that's where the nighttime comes in there. They're hiding from the predators, but then preying as well. Yeah, and that's what's driving the evolution and driving the behavior. You know, and I think when you, as a blackwater diver, throw a light in there, that's going to attract some species. Yeah. And others are going to head for the hills. You know, they're going to go down. So some species are attracted by light. You know, that gives them signals. You know, that's their language of light, I like to call it. Talk to each other with light. We don't know what, what we're saying or what, you know. I mean, there have been people like uh, Edie Witter, who's a fabulous scientist who's worked on bioluminescent, who talks about the way squid talk to each other with lights. And she's done experimental stuff of putting uh, lights in the water and flashing them on and off and you know can start to get to uh you know wow. talk to them as it were you know i mean it's quite exciting stuff you know what are we doing with the black water lights i don't know one of the photographers in japan well the, the main photographer in japan rio minemizu who's a fabulous photographer who's so dedicated to black water he's done like twenty-eight thousand dives <laughs> that's that's insane out of this world, really, in terms of numbers. He's so dedicated. Started, you know, completely outside the field, but just kind of did it and fell in love with it. But he works out of Okinawa and um, sort of southern islands of Japan. He has a really interesting light system, not, not the strongest lights, but he figures he gets more with a kind of muted blue light. Really? Pretty um, blue, yes. And the other thing is that he has a really strict system of not repeating the dives in the same place. And remember, he's only taking pictures of this, of the tiny, yeah. tiny, tiny plankton. But he thinks it's it disturbs them if you're if you're doing it too many times in the same place. He won't dive more than seven times in the same place over an entire year. Yeah. Same thing for like ports and especially a lot of cities and stuff. Like, I guess light pollution is, it's a bit of a random topic, but it is an issue 
and it even affects even the smallest animals, doesn't it? It is. I mean, we talk about light pollution in the in the skies, but it's a it's an issue underwater too. And uh, yeah, I think it's good for him to be sensitive to it. I haven't heard other people talk about it with that level of detail of what's good or not. You know, that's the system that's worked for him, and uh, so I don't know. I don't know how much science there is. Yeah. But I think, you know, precautionary is always good. So we've kind of talked a little bit about like what they are and how they move. But one of my burning questions really has to be, what would your favorite plankton or favorite group of planktonic animals be? What's your favorite? Yeah, that's that's actually tough <laughs> because they're, you know, they're all they're all such you know, amazing characters. And I mean, in terms of elegance, there's a photograph of the Mediterranean deal fish in the, in the book. And I absolutely adore that photograph. And, and the, the way that that fish looks, that lar larval fish looks like it's, it's like a race car. Yeah. Like describe it for us. Like, like as best you can. It just has undulating fins. And I think the photographer has got it in motion. It's, it's Alexander Semenov, who works mainly in the White Sea, northern Russia, but, you know, spends time in the Mediterranean. So it was off Italy. And it, it has these colors, but it also has the fluidity of almost like a, a pencil going through the water with all these fins. I, I don't know. It's really hard to, um, it's really hard to describe it. A race car pencil with fins. A race car pencil, yeah. And it has little, uh, you know, flaps and and extra. It's definitely one of the fancy race cars. It's not like a stripped down version. <laughs> it's one of the ones that has has all the uh, the extras, you know, attached to it to uh, soup it up. It's gorgeous. But, you know, I, I like, uh, you know, the porcupine fish as a juvenile is you know, gorgeous, you know, I mean, they just, they're just a little ball of love, you know. Are they like a miniature pineapple? Would you describe them as? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Or almost like one of those nuts that has a lot of spikes on it, you know, and, yeah. uh, but they have, you know, gorgeous faces because a lot of, a lot of these things, if you show them to general public, they think, oh God, that's ugly, you know, or this or that, you know, I always say that's a, that's a face that, you know, they have a mother and, you know, that's a face of mother. <laughs> but um, there are some that, you know, are immediately appealing to uh, to humans when you see them. And, you know, divers know that. I, you know, I like the behavior ones. You get some of these slipper lobsters and, and the shrimp and everything that ride on the jellyfish, you know. I think that's, that's so fabulous. And they almost, you know, use one claw when they're young and they take hold of a tiny jellyfish and they kind of wave it around and it's like they're you know hmm, come and you know come and see me you know it's a weapon you know they've 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 definitely uh, figured out in quotes through evolution how how to get by you know and that's that's one of the one of the ways you know if if you can avoid being stung yourself and you can hang on yeah. to them, you know and, and you've got a free ride sometimes you've got a it's great to see the interactions. I think what, what amazed me is that this is happening within a little tiny cube of the ocean, So this, these worlds. So, you know, you as a diver go down, and the way Mike Bartik describes it, you know, from Anna Lau, I thought was beautiful. You go down and you, you just focus on this one little section. And, and initially, you just see a lot of blobs you know or or like tiny little blobs specks of dirt whatever 
and but then you start to focus in and you get your lens going and and we're talking about you know species that are half an inch you know quarter inch tiny and and i try to give the exact or a, as much as possible um size of all these individuals because that that's in itself is amazing that you're getting this detail on the body and and color and everything else but what we're seeing is a in the book is a giant version of that as a blackwater photographer you see that when you look through the lens yeah you know i haven't done it and but i i live vicariously through them you know and i think i think it's just fabulous that this whole world is opening up you know the they also talk about being down there looking through the camera and then something big comes around you know next year <laughs> really looks big you know doesn't seem to be too much you know worry about that although you know that was i think that was the initial big worry that you're way out at sea because most of this is not having happening close to shore linda and susan in the gulf stream go way off florida into the edge of the gulf stream you know it's 10 miles 15 miles out you know the depths are staggering are the plankton moving from the bottom, like in an area where there's five kilometers deep, are they sitting in like halfway down or are they sitting right on the bottom and doing that migration every night the whole way? That's a good question. And people, and I, I've asked it, <laughs> but people don't know. We don't know, you know, I mean, yeah. some of them, I mean, the, the enticing thing is that occasionally, I mean, Susan Mears talks about seeing um, a deep sea angler type fish come up uh, one time into the surface waters. And, you know, that's not, in a way, that's not supposed to happen because they're, you know, they're adapted for depth. Yeah. You know? And, um, but this was a juvenile and, you know, they have different rules and, you know, who knows? So, so it could be fish that are, you know, used to living uh, a lot deeper than we think, or maybe they have their early lives in the top, you know, 400, 500 meters, you know. Yeah. Before they settle. Certainly in some areas of the world, there's a lot of, it's not just vertical migration. You, you might have vertical migration offshore, and then you have currents that are um, pushing that vertical migration in a horizontal way into an area like at Annalau, and to some extent in the White Sea. It's, and it's certainly not all deep stuff. There is stuff happening you know, quite high up in the middle waters that's coming to the surface. So I I don't know. I think it it probably varies in different parts of the world depending on what the depth is. I don't think there's evidence that things are coming up from the very bottom. Yeah. But there is certainly evidence that you have plankton uh, zooplankton in the black water in the surface waters that later on in its life settles at the very bottom yeah okay so benthic stuff stuff that lives on the bottom well it's sea cucumbers you know for example and you know so so you will get uh settling and you know even things like we were talking about flounder and uh so there is movement and you know and i think that movement is tremendously important for the ocean you know the the regular vertical migration plus the whole process of these species living in surface waters and then carrying nutrients and carbon and everything else to the bottom. You know, that's, that's a really vital part of what ocean species are doing for us on the planet. You know, there's a lot of sequestering, you know, of concentrating of carbon and then taking it toward the bottom 
of the ocean where it's not a problem to us in the way you know and i think the yeah the ocean has done that service for us you know always and and we're, what we're doing is potentially you know through pollution and acidity and all the other issues um with the ocean risking the ability of uh plankton to be able to perform that service for us yeah especially when you consider like they're just the what like the most numerous animal on the planet must be yeah like talk us through a little bit just um, briefly before we wrap up how like how the sequestering works so i know there's a bit of a pathway with phytoplankton and zooplankton but tell us like why they are so important how that works yeah, well, there. Yeah, so you have the phytoplankton, um, you know, which is getting energy from the sun. The carbon gets sequestered through that process, you know, gets put into the phytoplankton. When the zooplankton eat that, you know, they take on some of that. When the whales eat the zooplankton, you know, krill, blue whales eating krill and all of that, then then they take that. When they die, uh, those huge bodies uh, go to the bottom of the sea. And that carbon, you know, just stays down there, you know, in the same way with fish that will, you know, go to the bottom and live down there. So, yeah, so that that's part of that story. But there's also recycling of nutrients that happens, you know, the all the all of this stuff that's vertical, that goes on both the migration and and the sort of birth, you know, birth, life and death. It's incredibly important. And it operates in a different way than on land, you know, because land doesn't have the you know it just doesn't you know it's not like the ocean we're we're a water planet you know that's really where we're at it's uh yeah it's important that we we look at this you know one one part of the at the end of the book i i look at protected areas because that's part of my focus with with uh, whales and marine mammals and and i think that uh we should be looking at protection of plankton you know some of these extraordinary areas where you have the um, the vertical migrations going on and you have special species. You know, I mean, around Hawaii, you get a lot of unique species because it's so remote from everything else. You know, in the Arctic, you have different species, a lot of sea butterflies and things you don't get other places. I've got a kind of taster of different places in the world, um, focus on five places in the book. And that all those places i i think there was only one or there were only two that had any kind of protection and yeah and also the kind of protection they need is probably going to be need to be more comprehensive than it is at the moment because it's very superficial it's literally surface so when we talk about yeah. protected areas of the ocean you're talking about the surface area. you're not necessarily talking about the bottom or the middle layers and we really need the whole ecosystem it has to be ecosystem protection and it, it's interesting because you know you describe like phytoplankton are like trees you know they absorb that sunlight and that carbon and, and we're all about protecting our forests and fighting climate change with that but the the greatest forests are pretty much these tiny microscopic trees that yeah are plankton and it's a it's a really interesting like an unseen world I think. You, you've said it perfectly i mean that and it is that's most the unseen world is most of the world you know we're we're just we're just on these little specks of land these little islands on a water planet and we we we, we need to realize that yeah definitely well before we kind of get to the end of the show uh, have you got any really cool facts about plankton 
or just interesting facts about plankton? Yeah, I think I don't know. I think the um, I've th- I've thrown so many interesting facts all along, probably too many. Nah, never. Yeah, never. Yeah. Uh, let me think. I'm sort of looking around and thinking. So yeah, so I I, I think for for me the evolution and the the development first of all because development teaches us a lot actually about evolution because if you look at what species look like when they're in their infant stages you know their their larval stages and even egg you know and before that that's when they that's when they kind of reveal what clan they're in you know what kind of bigger club they're in yeah and then as they as they develop, it kind of narrows down a little bit, you know, and you can see this in all species. It's not just plankton and and it's not just water-based, you know, land-based as well. You can start to piece together by looking at all these stages. What are the evolutionary factors that drive the way they look? And, but we just don't know that much, you know, we're just, we're just learning, you know, and, uh, you know, I'd love to come back to this um, book in another five or 10 years. I, I came back to one of my earlier books, um, Creatures of the Deep, after 20 years and rewrote it and added a, you know another massive chapter and everything. Were there any errors or anything that like, you were like, oh, we thought that, but it's not? Well, it was, well, what, I mean, some of it was historical because there, we didn't actually know how deep the Marianas Trench were. And now there's still a lot of debate about it. So we probably still don't know that. But uh, Vescovo, Victor Vescovo, who's, you know, currently doing the, you know, these amazing dives in all the deepest parts of every ocean and taking uh, people down, you know, all over the place. I mean, it's just gone to a whole other level um, from what it was uh, for, you know, until, until now, till the last five years. He's, uh, measuring and coming up with statistics that are different from James Cameron and different from the original uh, um, explorers and different from some of the um, remote subs that have gone to Mariana's Trench and some of these other areas. So, you know, we, we don't even know how deep the ocean is in our, in our, on our own planet, you know, in the first edition of the book, I said, we'd mapped uh, less than 1% of the ocean. And I think that was accurate you know, fairly accurate at the time, but we have actually mapped uh, quite a few more percentage points. Now I forget exactly what it is, but we, we are, you know, we are still at the very beginning of our knowledge. We know less about it than the, you know, some of the planets, but, you know, getting to know more about the deep sea. We're so lucky to be at the dawn of all this. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings us right to the end, but just before we wrap up, if people want to see different plankton, either through your amazing book, which has some incredible imagery in it, or if they want to see it in reality or learn more about it, what should they do and where should they go? I mean, certainly you can see plankton in aquariums. You can see jellyfish. and you, In the wild, um, there are now diving tours that take people out at night. You want to be an experienced diver. Uh, there's a, a company called Pura Vida off Florida is one of the two companies in Southern Florida that's taking people out. There's Crystal Blue Resort in um, Anilao in the Philippines uh, for six months a year. Mike Bartik, who started the Blackwater Photo Group, which is on Facebook, 
um, and Instagram, which is a fabulous way to tune into all this stuff. The Blackwater yeah. Photo Group. You can anybody can join. It's a public group, um, and you can submit your photos. You know, if you're enthusiastic and you're starting to do this in your in your backyard, so to speak. <laughs> um, but I, you know, yeah, there's so much out there that's developing. It's and it's all recent. You know, we're talking about the last really handful of years. There's some nice books out besides mine. Uh, there's a guide to all the fish and plankton in Hawaii and blackwater diving, field guide to blackwater diving by Jeff Millison. And there's a um, a couple of editions of a wonderful book by Linda Ianiello and Susan Mears called Blackwater Photography. You know, I'm happy if people also want to investigate my book and look, you know, and learn about some of the different people who are doing this in different parts of the world. Planktonia. Can I talk about the title for one minute? Yes, please, because that has interested me a lot. Yeah, planktonia is not a word in English. I'm I'm so pleased to, uh, you know, to have, well, to in, invent a word. It's not I haven't invented the word really. It's a Finnish word for plankton. But what I wanted to conjure up with planktonia was the idea of all these plankton coming to the surface at night along with all their predators so it's to me that's the world of plankton and it's sort of yeah. you know it sounds like a kingdom planktonia <laughs> it does doesn't it and, and i and i thought well that it is a kingdom you know and and uh so i i feel great that that um word is sort of you know i i sent it to my publisher and and i thought oh they're going to say no that that's not even a word you know how are you going <laughs> to name a book and publishers get the last word on titles. Yeah, it, it's such a cool book. I've I've been having a look through, and it's helped me identify a few of the animals I've seen doing blackwater photography. And when does it come out in different parts of the world? The book uh, Pl Planktonia is out in the U.S. and Canada now, and it comes out in um, U.K., Europe, Australia, New Zealand, early November. Yeah, and I'll post all the details about what we've talked about in the links, including the link to your book. It's It's been awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see my photography on Instagram at Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography or my website, mtunderwatermedia.com. Production assistance by George McGrath and music by the talented Dan Musil. Check out more of Dan's work at danmuselmusic.com. If you've liked the show, jump onto our Patreon account, patreon.com slash podcast, where you can give a little donation each month to help the running costs of the show. Also, if you're a fan of the show, don't forget to give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to the podcast. Tune in next time on the Sea Creatures Podcast to hear all about jellyfish with our special guest, Scott Morrissey, who studies their DNA. This is the Sea Creatures Podcast. Over and out.